0: Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Investing is said to involve climbing a wall of worry. So where will the next crisis come from? A good place to
1: look for clues is the Fed's twice yearly financial stability report. The latest report highlights risks at banks, money market funds and commercial real estate. But will they really cause the next crash? And in today's dumb question of the week, surely low liquidity just means the price is too high. Okay, let's get into it. So last week we saw the release of the latest financial stability report from the Federal Reserve. And it does come at a time where maybe the financial system isn't quite so stable. So we've seen bank failures in the US, for example. So Roman, let's start with what's the
0: point of a report like this? Well, usually they're seen as having a list of all the previous crises, kind of a list of what went wrong in the past. But unfortunately, we haven't had much repetition of crises. You know, no two crises are exactly the same. So unfortunately, you're kind of monitoring for something which may not happen.
1: They fix the roof and
0: then you get subsidence
1: <laughs> that you weren't looking for.
0: That's right. I mean, at some point, these things have got to repeat. And there are similarities. I mean, if you look at things like leverage, that's often behind what causes the problems.
1: I mean, they have a whole section of the report, which is just based on looking at leverage in different parts of the system.
0: And you can bet, you know, they're sitting there in a room scratching their heads thinking, you know, where could we find pockets of leverage? And it's not easy to do. You know, often it's hidden. And for example, at the moment, it's private markets, which are probably hiding a lot of the risks. Because the problem with those markets is a lack of transparency.
1: Yeah, so I think they cite hedge funds as having above average leverage and specifically the biggest hedge funds have more leverage than they're comfortable with.
0: Yeah, so that's often a source of instability because what ends up happening is that hedge funds are false sellers because there's a crisis in one asset class, which is often an illiquid asset class. And that means they end up selling the liquid stuff. So that's usually the path of contagion and how it spreads from one asset class to multiple asset classes. Hedge funds are usually the contagion route,
1: kind of like toddlers at nursery. Oh, don't talk to me about toddler contagion. It's just one bloody cold (laughs) after another at the moment.
0: But it's not just the Federal Reserve that does the stability reports. Every big central bank does it, the ECB, the Bank of England. And personally, I love reading them because you can see that you know at least they care about this stuff.
1: I mean, that's their job. They've got to care about it, even if they miss the obvious thing sometimes. But
0: it's good that somebody cares and, you know, that they're monitoring it. But it's also a really useful source of information. They kind of publish information, which is difficult for retail
1: investors to find elsewhere. And that's why it's useful, I think, to read. I mean, the obvious place to start, really, with this report is what did they say about the banking crisis, which we're at the end of or in the middle of? No one's really quite sure.
0: (laughs) I don't think they're sure either. I mean, they're hoping that they've kind of stopped contagion, certainly in the US, with the loan program that they've got. But I think their point, which is a good one, is that this isn't going to be a repeat of 2008, because then it was about bad quality assets. This time, it's about good quality assets, US Treasuries, which have lost value due to increasing interest rates due to the Fed's actions. Okay.
1: Well, you say they're good quality assets, Roman.
0: <laughs> In terms of credit, they're good assets. It's just if you have a lot of duration risk, then obviously if rates are increasing, then that's going to be a problem. So
1: it's not credit risk that's the issue here. It's the interest rate risk or duration risk, as some people call it. I mean, we are about one month away from the X date on the debt ceiling. So (laughs) let's not count our chickens on credit quality.
0: Yeah, let's just assume that uh, there is sanity in US politics and they won't go to the wire. I mean, President Trump came out and said in that CNN town hall that the Republicans should hold the Democrats accountable and force them to reduce spending and make that a precondition for paying the US's bills, which is clearly a very dangerous game. It's a
1: hard-line position, if we're putting it politely, but I think they will come to some kind of deal. There's rumours that behind the scenes there's a deal being put in place at the moment. But I think the Fed's point about the banking crisis more broadly was that it does consider the sector to be, and I quote, resilient with substantial loss-absorbing capacity. So basically, it doesn't seem to think there's any real systemic risk there.
0: But that's because they're using the 2008 measure of risk which is based on bad assets. So they're looking at loss-absorbing capital on the liability side of the balance sheet. So that's mostly equity and retained cash. So if the assets fall in value, how much loss-absorbing capital have you got on the liability side? Because you haven't got enough, you go bankrupt. That was never the problem. These banks which defaulted had very good capital ratios and lots of loss-absorbing equity. The problem was the value of the deposits fell very dramatically as people ran out of the door. So now they've got to change the measures, I think. So what we'll probably see in future versions of this financial stability report will be something to do with concentration of deposits within a given sector for the commercial deposits, the proportion of deposits which are above the guarantee which the US offers, which is $250,000 from the FDIC.
1: Yeah, uninsured deposits is a big one because all the banks that have had these bank runs or some people calling it a bank jog because they don't seem to be going that fast. (laughs) But the bank runs are basically where depositors are worried that they might not get their money back because they're above that limit.
0: Or some kind of asset liability duration mismatch measure. So if you've got very short term liabilities where people can just pull out their money and then your assets are very long term then there could be some kind of risk there. But there's also a kind of duration mismatch, which you have to worry about. So have they hedged that with interest rate swaps? You know, what mitigation
1: measures have they taken? And interestingly, the Fed says its examiners, and I quote, have increased the frequency and depth of monitoring with examination activities directed to assessing the current valuation of investment securities, deposit trends, the diversity of funding sources, and the adequacy of contingency funding plans at vulnerable banks. So that's basically all the stuff you just talked about. Yeah, so they're doing it. They're saying, we're looking at it all. Don't worry, guys.
0: So we've bolted the latest stable door. But unfortunately, there are many doors.
1: And the horse keeps bolting out of new ones, unfortunately. Put it down at this point. (laughs) Let's just (laughs) go to narrow banking and be done with it. I mean, the banking system, it's strange, isn't it, this year? Because interest rates have obviously been rising, which has pushed some of the vulnerable banks over the edge as their assets have fallen in value. But the sector as a whole just posted record profits in the US. For Q1, it was $80 billion in bank profits, which is up a third on last year.
0: Yeah, so it certainly has been profitable as long as you didn't have these problems with treasuries where people were worried that the bank was going to go under and then people walked out of the door. So it's basically deposit flight that was causing the
1: problems. It's kind of weird, though, banking, when you think about it in terms of capitalism. Like generally, with most sectors of the economy, you think... Yeah, some businesses are going to fail. That's natural. That's normal. That's part of capitalism. Good businesses will take their place. And it's this kind of Darwinian process. But in banking, any failures are seen as, you know, a real cause of concern.
0: Yeah, the fact there are things like GSIBs, globally systemically important banks, you know, you have to look after those banks and ensure that they have got enough capital in place. Because if they go down, they are systemically important. So I think in terms of financial plumbing,
1: Banks are very much a choke point. We've said before that they're kind of, in a way, quasi-public entities, even though they're commercial banks. And did you see that Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of JP Morgan, said that short selling of bank stocks should actually be banned? What do you think of that? I think he's a communist. <laughs> <laughs> did someone accuse you of being a communist the other day? <laughs> they said I should call my dog Comrade Teddy. But what do you think about Jamie Dimon? Is he talking his own book here? It is a bit odd. I mean, I can't see
0: why you'd try and stop people doing that. I mean, as long as the bank's in good shape, it wouldn't cause a problem
1: anyway. Oh, I don't know. I can kind of see why people would stop the short selling of banks. So they kind of did that for a while after 2008. Because for most businesses, right, short sellers can release these reports criticizing the stock and push down the value of the stock, right? And for most businesses, that doesn't really matter. The stock price is kind of irrelevant to their ongoing daily operations. But with a bank... Like we said before, it's kind of a confidence trick, right? Where you don't have all the money to pay everyone back if there's a run on the bank. And a falling stock price, as we've seen over the last few months, twigs depositors onto the fact that, oh, there's trouble at this bank, and they start pulling their money. So stock price decline can lead on to deposit flight and the failure of the bank. So I can kind of see the case for why short selling of banks is a special case.
0: But the thing is, if you have lots of people shorting a stock... You can monitor that. So you can actually look at the number of people who have borrowed the stock to sell it. And so you can monitor the percentage of stock which is currently being loaned out. But that doesn't necessarily push down the share price. If the company's in good shape, then it can actually have the opposite effect. If they've had very good earnings, then all of the short sellers have to close out their position. And you get something called the short squeeze. It's the You get a very kind of short-term rally in the stock. So I don't really buy the argument that short selling is necessarily going to push down the stock price. So I'm a bit surprised that Diamond said that. I don't know if it's
1: the selling itself. It's the reports they release about stocks, which is generally good, right? It performs a market function that you have the ability to short sell and therefore people are incentivized to look for bad stocks because they can make money as they fall in price. But with banks, do you want that? I would say yes, but like Jamie Dimon says no.
0: (laughs) I'd say yes. You know, I think that it's a valuable thing to know. If a bank is slightly shaky, I think it's probably good to air it rather than kind of cover it up in a way.
1: Yeah. No, I thought that. But I think regulators do kind of lean in that direction. Like we said, after 2008, there was this move to ban short selling. And especially in Europe... I say European regulators are always quick on the draw to ban short-sellers or to threaten short-sellers with prosecution.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think in Germany, for example, it happened. But yeah, I'm not a big fan of short-selling bans. I just think it's best to have a transparent market and just be absolutely clear about, you know, what's going on. I think that's much better than pretending things aren't problematic. But I do remember when Northern Rock went down in the UK, there was a report by Robert Peston that came just before that And I thought, oh, no, this is going to cause a bank run. And it did. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's difficult. I mean, it's hard to know whether you can actually shore up belief in banks. Because ultimately, like you say, it's a belief game. And once the belief starts to fade, then, you know, you get deposit flights and there's nothing that can save a bank if that happens.
1: But in terms of the proximate risk to US banks here, which has come from interest rates going up, it appears that the Fed's probably got to the top of its hiking cycle for now. And they seem quite sanguine about the risk here. So they describe banks' exposure to interest rate risk now as moderate in the US and that a large majority of banks are resilient. And they actually say that 45% of bank assets mature in the next 12 months, which reduces their exposure to legacy fixed rate assets. What does that actually mean?
0: Well, a lot of US treasuries
1: have fairly short maturity. So they're going to start rolling off the balance sheet.
0: Exactly, yeah. They're just going to mature. You know, there isn't that much debt, which is long term compared to, say, the UK, where traditionally we issue a lot more long term debt. So, yeah, the interest rate risk part is probably not so important now. I think the only big risk now that would make treasuries fall in value a lot would be worries about default. So let's just hope that resolves
1: itself as it usually does. And the other part of the financial system that the Fed's report spends a bit of time looking at is what they call runnable money. Should we describe what that is before we stagger everyone with how much runnable money there is? (laughs) So we talked about bank
0: runs and the financial system isn't just about banks. There's a kind of shadow banking system. The job of this is to do what banks do, kind of, but not with a banking license. So for example, a money market fund is something which generates a small return on capital and it invests in very safe things or previously safe things. And the point is that you can take your money out of these accounts very quickly, out of these funds. So the idea of runnable just means that people flood out of an asset class very quickly.
1: Yeah, there's no lock on the duration. So it's really subject to the whims of depositors or investors in terms of a money market fund. So there are $19.6 trillion of runnable money-like liabilities across the financial system. Now, that seems like a lot to me, <laughs> like, It is enough.
0: almost $20 trillion. And that's almost three quarters of US GDP. So that's a lot of money. And if people suddenly get scared about a certain asset class, like money market funds, then you know there would be a stampede and that would cause a huge fall in prices for a lot of assets and a big jump in yield.
1: Don't you think big numbers just in themselves are scary, though, <laughs> for some reason?
0: <laughs> well, the size of that market, I think, is shocking. I think people don't appreciate how big that market is for safe stuff. And people are really clinging to safety right now.
1: And they also flag up open-ended bond funds as, and I quote, remaining susceptible to large redemptions as they hold securities that can become illiquid during periods of stress. Quite similar to the money market fund idea then.
0: Yep. And, you know, we've seen that in the past as well. Although, to be fair, I think a lot of these open-ended funds actually fared pretty well in previous big sell-offs. For example, high yield ETFs, where the bonds themselves are very illiquid, but people can pull out their money out of the ETF immediately. And so I think there people were thinking, oh, there's a big liquidity mismatch, very liquid fund, very liquid asset inside it. If people pull out their money, they're not going to be able to sell the bonds fast enough. But in the event, it
1: turned out that they were pretty robust. So I often wonder with this financial stability report from the Fed, like how much of it is genuine concern when I'm reading about runnable money and money market funds and how much of it is just kind of hedging their bets and saying it in case something weird happens. They can go, look, we did say this. You know, like when you read a company report and they have all these disclaimers and say, you know, if aliens invade, our stock price is going to go down. <laughs> they have all the kind of crazy stuff in there. I think that's
0: true. I think one of the problems was that, for example, with Silicon Valley Bank, They were actually in contact with the bank and giving them these red flag notices and the bank just ignored it. They did nothing. So I think in one sense, the Fed's fairly powerless to act unless there's a full on crisis. And then everybody expects the Fed to fix
1: everyone else's problems. Which they actually in the report frequently say that they have done that. (laughs) They always are saying stuff like, Thanks to the actions of the Federal Reserve, the decisive actions, (laughs) the banking system remains sound. But it's true. We'd all like to mark our own homework, Robin.
0: You look at the Bank of England, you know, they stepped in so fast when there was this huge sell-off in UK gilts, and it looked like lots of defined benefit pension plans were going to go bust. Yeah. They did it. You know, they stepped in. They did what was necessary, and it fixed the problem. I think as a lender of last resort, this kind of safety net is really useful. So I think, you know, saying that they've done that is fair enough. You know, give them their credit.
1: <laughs> it's just some of the language they use is quite funny. Yeah. Because in the section where they're talking about the banks that have failed, they say stuff like, despite all the actions <laughs> and of the Federal Reserve and all our regulation, these clowns still fail. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of why the debt ceiling limit is so scary because Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, he always says there's nothing we can do. You default in your debt. We'll try stuff, but basically you're on your own.
0: He's even got a little script. I'm sure he's got a post-it note on his podium.
1: Yeah, he said, there's no rabbits to pull out of the hat here. And someone asked about the uh, trillion dollar platinum coin, which we talked about before. And he says, that would be a rabbit coming out of the hat. <laughs> so don't count on it. I mean, it all brings us around to the treasury market, which is kind of underlying all of this stuff. It's what's in money market funds to a large extent. It's what's in these bond funds that they're kind of a bit nervous about. And they do flag up in a section of the report that the volatility of the Treasury market is much higher than usual and the liquidity has actually been much lower than usual. So even on March the 13th this year, two-year Treasury yields fell by more than 60 basis points in a day, which is the single largest decline since 1987.
0: So that's the kind of thing you'd expect to see in a full-blown crisis. And in this case, it's interesting. If you look at the US yield curve... The very short end of the yield curve, which is not going to quite reach the X date, or at least it wouldn't have at that point, those bonds were in big demand because people need safe stuff because people are buying money market funds. The money market funds need to buy safe things. So they need lots of short term
1: debt. And these are the ones that can't default because they mature before the debt ceiling.
0: Yeah. And then the ones well after also, the yields didn't really spike much. The ones which people were shunning were the ones which were really close to the X date in terms of maturity
1: date. Yeah, the ones with the crosshairs focused nicely on them if everything goes wrong in US politics.
0: This kind of reminds me of the ring of repugnance. Have you heard of that? No. If you watch cows eating in a field, they actually don't eat in a ring around each of their cow (laughs) That's because of kind of parasites, which live inside the cow dung. So they've learnt or evolved to kind of avoid the ring of repugnance. Anyway, so the ring of repugnance in this case is the X date, and investors are kind of avoiding maturity dates around the X date, and that means that the yields have fallen very dramatically as people buy the really short-term stuff. So it's a very weird-looking yield curve right now. So you can see why the two-year yield fell by so
1: much. What you're saying is the debt ceiling is bullshit. Yeah, be careful what you eat.
0: But the liquidity question is an interesting one, because if there's an illiquid market, the problem is that you get very amplified volatility. Let's imagine that you and I are market makers, and there's a treasury which is trading at 100. What we'd do is we'd say, look, we'll buy this amount of treasuries at this price, which is like, I don't know, $99.9, and we'd sell at 100.1. But if we're really worried about treasuries being very volatile, we'll move out our bid and our offer so that we're not taking such a big risk buying at the market, close to being at the market. So that's what you typically see when market makers are kind of nervous and you've got a very volatile market. So it kind of feeds on itself. High volatility means less market depth, near to the market mid-price, and that in turn amplifies
1: volatility. And presumably you don't want the treasury market to be highly volatile or illiquid.
0: No, because I mean, if the financial plumbing of the world depends on treasuries as collateral and they're expensive to trade because they're illiquid, well, that's kind of like throwing sand into the gears of the economic system. So it's really not what you want. And if you can't lend in this market, if you haven't got a repo market that works, nobody understands the repo market, but I mean, it's so important to the treasury market functioning.
1: And if that market dries up as well, it's a huge problem for everybody. I mean, how much of this has been due to the Fed shrinking its balance sheet, though? Because the Fed was a big buyer of treasuries, right?
0: That's part of it, I think. Now that the Fed's gone, there's going to be a lot less appetite, demand for bonds, because, you know, the hugest buyer has actually disappeared. And then I think the other problem is due to legislation, because the Fed's been forcing banks to shrink their balance sheets. That means they haven't got inventory. They can't buy lots of bonds in order to create a market. And that's made the bid-offer spreads wider because the banks haven't got inventory. So they depend much more on the repo market to get the inventory off their balance sheet. So there's a whole bunch of stuff which has led to this problem. Some of it is regulatory, not allowing banks to take balance sheet risk, for example.
1: Yeah, so obviously there's been a lot of focus on bank balance sheets. But interestingly, in the report, there's a whole section on the balance sheets of households and businesses. Because obviously that's where risk can come from if households are overleveraged, as we saw in 2008, right? People are taking on too much debt to buy houses with subprime mortgages and it led to a huge crash. So what do they say about household borrowing now?
0: Well, they talk about large home equity cushions, which sounds like some kind of fancy soft <laughs> furnishing, but it's not. It's talking about how much leverage a household has.
1: Yeah, when they talk about a large equity cushion in uh, people's houses, I think, yeah, they're meaning that the mortgage as a percentage of the value of the home is not too high compared to where it used to be.
0: So that's one measure. And then the other one is a kind of debt servicing cost, like an interest cover ratio for a company. If you look at your disposable income, how easily can you service your debt? Because if that starts to rise, then there's worry about defaults for mortgages,
1: but also for credit cards, home loans, car loans, boat loans, all the other good stuff. And that's the thing they highlight in the report, is that mortgage defaults are near record lows, and there's very few credit card delinquencies. So it doesn't seem like people are under much financial stress in the aggregate. I'm sure there are people struggling, but at a broad level.
0: And that's why I think having some kind of long-term borrowing in any financial system is really important. And why in the UK, we've kind of created a problem for ourselves in not having this 30-year mortgage, which the US has. Because, you know, we have to end the fix after two years, say. Whereas in the US, they can just ride out the volatility in borrowing markets. If you fix for 30 years, you don't really care as long as you don't have to move house or you're not a new first time buyer. And that's certainly reduced some of the volatility and reduced these debt servicing costs having a huge negative effect. It's also slowed down the effect of monetary policy, it has to be said.
1: I saw someone asked Andrew Bailey that same question, even though we don't have long duration mortgages here. And his take was that
0: now we've gone very much to a fixed term borrowing mortgage market. So the UK is certainly going that way. It's just the duration of the fixes is so much shorter.
1: Yeah, I think he said something like 85% of the UK mortgage market is at fixed rates. Obviously, it's for two or five years. And so he was taking on board the point that monetary policy has definitely got a lag of, you know, two to five years as more and more people's mortgages come up for renewal and the higher rate kicks in.
0: Yeah, these are the long-term lags that the Federal Reserve, but also the Bank of England talks
1: about in its monetary policy. So with the Federal Reserve, that's almost not part of the transmission mechanism now in the US, right? Because you've got 30-year mortgages, which a lot of people are on. When the Fed hikes, it doesn't raise the mortgage rates of existing mortgages. So the transmission mechanism to households seems to be much more that people can get a better return on their savings. And you've seen a huge inflow into money market funds chasing higher interest rates and out of banks who've been you know, slow to raise their deposit rates.
0: Some of the liabilities for households do increase quickly. So for example, credit card interest payments, those will probably pick up very quickly once the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. But the kind of long term debt, you know, things like mortgage debt, that's not going to pick up quickly. So there are transmission mechanisms, and we are starting to see house prices fall. But we had such a huge rally in house prices after the pandemic. It's only if you bought right at the top, like I did, that it's a problem.
1: But I think our members at Pension Craft always expect you to take one for the team and then report back <laughs> on how it's gone.
0: Well, that's the idea. You know, I mean, I, I'm the kind of clown that goes out and does stuff. And hopefully people learn
1: from my experience. <laughs> and to move on to businesses, so there. Again, they're not really concerned about business debt. So they say the interest coverage ratio, which is something you mentioned, of like how easy is it for businesses to pay the interest on their existing debt? That's at good levels. They're not very worried there. But they do flag up that there seems to be some high leverage at large businesses. Like they've got a bit more debt than the Fed is really comfortable with.
0: The one that really I've noticed over the years, which does seem unsustainable, is a leveraged loan market. I mean, they've got this brilliant table in the Fed's financial stability report, which has the size of each market, which I think is great. So the size of the US residential real estate market is $56 trillion. The stock market's about $47 trillion. Treasuries, $24 trillion. Commercial real estate, twenty-four. trillion. So you can see the size of these markets, but also it gives you the growth rate since 1997. And the one which really jumps out at me always is leveraged loans. So that's been growing at just under 14% per year. So a huge growth rate, but it's still not very big compared to the whole economy. It's only $1.4 trillion. So what are leveraged loans? So let's imagine that you're a subprime borrower, maybe a small company, and you want to borrow some money. You've got various choices. You could go to the bank or you could issue a leveraged loan. And these are usually issued by these poor credit quality companies. They usually offer a very high interest rate, so it will be expensive for you. And, you know, the covenants on these are pretty weak. So as a lender, you know, you haven't got much recourse if they do default.
1: So it sounds a lot like subprime mortgages, but for
0: businesses. Yeah, a little bit, I think. It is a high risk investment if you do buy them. And usually they get bought and then packaged up into securitized vehicles called collateralized
1: loan obligations, CLOs. And that, again, sounds a lot like the subprime mortgage market, which was packaged (laughs) up into CDOs.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, CLOs had a big sell-off and a liquidity problem. You know, they were part of the problem in 2008. So I think this is a problem which is kind of shadow and echo of what happened in 2008. But it's still small enough not to be systemically important, I guess.
1: Yeah. And certainly it's not something in the report that you read and think, wow, the Fed's really worried about this. This is going to be the next thing that blows up the financial system. That's not what comes across at all. Where you think that might be coming from is the commercial real estate market, where the Fed does use much stronger words in the report.
0: Yeah, so this is a $24 trillion market, much smaller than equities, which are 47, but still a very sizable proportion of US GDP if it goes wrong.
1: And it appears to be going wrong a little bit.
0: And it's still very, very expensive. So if you look at something like commercial property prices right now, there's a graph which is steadily increasing. And, you know, the Fed warns that it's still expensive.
1: It has started to roll over. So prices are coming down over the last six months. But the thing is, it's also really hard to value because these are typically not traded publicly. You know, it's an office building or a shopping mall. And, you know, you only really see what the price is when one private equity firm flogs it to another at a discount. And you go, whoa, the bottom's <laughs> falling out of this market. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so illiquid... Very difficult to price, and prices are starting to fall. So I think there'll be lots of kind of horrors on balance sheets. And I wonder which entities they are that are holding these assets, Michael.
1: Well, they say that banks hold about 60% of these commercial real estate loans. But surely it's a
0: large, systemically important banks with strong balance sheets.
1: Well, sorry to disappoint you, but more than two-thirds of those loans are held by the small banks, the ones that have just suffered deposit flight and asset duration issues. So it is definitely putting one more straw on the camel's back.
0: So we've had cows and camels so far. What other ungulates will we draw into the uh,
1: metaphor zoo, which we've got today? I don't even know what an ungulate is. I mean, there's a quote from the report, which I think is just worth reading in its entirety, because it does kind of capture the concern here. So the feds say, the shift towards telework. I don't know why they're still using a phrase from the 1950s, but there you go. (laughs) The shift towards telework in many industries has dramatically reduced demand for office space which could lead to a correction in the values of office buildings and downtown retail properties that largely depend on office workers. Moreover, the rise in interest rates over the past year increases the risk that commercial real estate mortgage borrowers will not be able to refinance their loans when the loans reach the end of the term. With commercial real estate valuations remaining elevated, the magnitude of a correction in property values could be sizable and therefore could lead to credit losses by holders of the debt. So let's
0: look at the breakdown of the holders. Bag holders, I suppose you'd call them. So we said that the market in total was twenty-nine trillion dollars. GSIBS, these are the big Fortress balance sheet, JP Morgan's of the world, they own fourteen trillion of that. But seven trillion is owned by category two to five banks. So these are not your huge multinational banks. These are the regional banks which have been so fraught with problems recently. And seven trillion is held by other. So I presume these are the teeny tiny banks.
1: Yeah, when you read the report, it does seem like they're mostly concerned about the small banks and that commercial property loans make up more than 20% of the assets of small banks, I think. So it is significant if that default rate picks up on what is quite a sizable chunk of their balance sheet. So they say
0: there are two caveats, which they think are important to emphasise. The first thing they say is that The loan-to-values of CRE mortgages held by banks other than Category 1 to 4, so these are the tiddlers that we were talking about, is limited. So presumably there's a lot of equity on the loan. So that would be loss-absorbing if prices fall. In other words, they bought when prices were low, prices have surged. So if prices fall a little bit, it's not necessarily going to be a problem. And that'll make it easier to refinance.
1: As long as they haven't leveraged it up along the way.
0: Or bought recently when prices were very high. And the second point that the Fed makes is that CRE property valuations are elevated and current loan-to-values could rise considerably if CRE property valuations were to fall. So this is a warning, which is prices fall,
1: LTV increases. Just a mechanical, numerical thing. I mean, it seems that there's around $1.5 trillion of commercial real estate debt that matures in the next three years. So there's a lot of debt which will be moving up to higher rates Is it going to be affordable? And just the market as a whole, particularly offices, because remember, commercial real estate isn't just offices, far from it. But in terms of offices, the vacant office space in the US is the highest it's ever been. 18.7% was the figure I saw. That seems remarkable that there's almost 20% of offices with no one in them. So I think that's
0: an important point also, which is that this sector, the office space sector is one which is obviously in trouble because revenues there will be falling and prices too. Other sectors of commercial real estate won't be affected. So things like industrial real estate, multifamily rentals, retail, obviously retail's not in great shape, but there the impacts have already largely been felt, I think. Those sectors probably won't be so negatively impacted. So it's not just about office space if you're talking about commercial real estate, but you can bet that that's the sector they'll be looking at when they look at the risks on bank balance sheets.
1: Yeah. We have actually seen the defaults starting to come in. So Columbia Property Trust defaulted on $1.7 billion loans and Brookfield Asset Management abandoned two buildings in LA with $750 million in debt. And these are, you know, big companies in the commercial real estate space. So it is starting. It's just a question of how bad is it going to get and who's going to carry the can.
0: Now, if it's a gradual effect, I think it'll probably have a smaller impact. The trouble really happens when you have something like a maturity wall and a lot of these loans come to you at the same time, and then you get real problems. That's what the Fed's worried about, this maturity wall, which we've got in commercial real estate. So this is definitely one to watch. The only question, I think, is whether it's going to be systemic. You know, will this just be a kind of fairly localised market impact? By localised, I mean particular sectors. Or will it spill out into the broader market? The thing is, it's a fairly niche market. So I suspect it'll probably remain contained. And certainly now it's on the Fed's radar. It's much less likely to become a systemic problem.
1: But it is a big change to life, right, for people in the US, where living in the suburbs and commuting to a downtown office has been the way of life for, what, like 50, 60 years? And if that's moving to more of a blended thing where you're in a smaller office two days a week or whatever, that's a big change. And if you're not going to convert a lot of office buildings to flats or apartments, what are you going to do with them?
0: Yeah, I think there'll be secondary effects, but these will be gradual And this will be due to a change in behaviour. So all of those coffee shops, you know, if you're bored at the office, what do you do? You go out for a coffee, an
1: overpriced frothy one. In Wales, they actually call a cappuccino a frothy coffee. Did you know that?
0: I did know that. The Welsh word for it, yes. (laughs) 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 And then things like, you know, sandwich shops, laundrettes, which are in city centres, you know, this kind of stuff is going to really struggle as a result of this change in behaviour.
1: If it sticks... There are murmurings of bosses wanting everyone back in the office. But I think workers will manage to resist it.
0: But I did think, you know, every day I thought this. This is madness. I have to put my meat, my body into this tube, this metal tube. Stop putting
1: your meat into the
0: tube, right?
1: <laughs> 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 but it's just
0: like, you know, you feel like a piece of meat just being shuttled back and forth into London and out of London. And you just think, you know, what's the point of this? You know, it takes me two hours every day just to get to work and back.
1: Yeah, I can just sit in my nice house in Amersham and look out my window and see the cows and the camels. (laughs) So shall we take a look at the other major risks cited by this survey of market contacts, the Fed calls them. Doesn't name who they are. That would have been cool to be one. Maybe you are. You probably wouldn't be allowed to tell us. Roman, I think we should give our own sort of red, amber, green traffic like system for each of these risks. Of, do you actually believe it's a big risk? I know we're both colorblind, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> so their number one is persistent inflation and monetary tightening.
0: Well, I think that's kind of off the radar now. You know, I think that's much less of a risk. Now we're at the end of the cycle, close to it. So I'd say amber for that one.
1: Number two is banking sector stress for this sort of long, ongoing, protracted failure of banks.
0: I think amber. I think that one's still ongoing. And I think it's likely that there's going to be
1: other fallout from that. Remember, this is in the next 12 months. Yeah, I'd still say amber. Are you just going to give everything an amber? (laughs) So therefore, you can say if something blows up, I did say it was a risk. Number three was US-China tensions. And I was actually surprised to see it quite this high on the list.
0: I'd say that's a red. You know, I think there's a real risk that there's going to be a problem there. And it'll be such a large impact. You know, so if it does happen, it'll just be catastrophic for markets. So, yeah, I'd say I'd give that one a red.
1: When you say it does, do you mean an invasion of Taiwan? Yeah. Does it have to get to that stage, though, for this to be a real risk to markets? Does it have to be an invasion of Taiwan, or could there just be you know, a breakdown in trade or something?
0: I think to take it to that next level, there's already a breakdown in trade and trust. I think it would take that kind of escalation to cause a real problem for markets.
1: So that would be one of your top risks, a red risk? Definitely, yeah. Number four on this list is commercial and residential real estate, which we've talked about here.
0: 12 months, probably not. I'd say that's a green for 12 months, but probably red later on. Number five,
1: Russia-Ukraine war. Now, obviously, it's a bad news story, but is it a massive risk for markets now that we've got through the sort of gas crisis, we hope?
0: I'd say that's a green right now, but it's got the potential to become red if it escalates.
1: Oh, yeah. If it's nuclear war, we'll say it's a red.
0: Or if it spills out, right? If it spills out into the rest of Europe. But at the moment, let's call it green. Number six is the debt limit. Red. (laughs) Yeah, because you never know, right? American politics is crazy. Yeah, (laughs) and if Trump does get re-elected, then, you know, there's a real problem, I think, if that's his attitude to debt markets.
1: The next one on the list is market liquidity strains and volatility. So that's a pretty generic thing. I'm guessing it means the treasury market.
0: Yeah, and equity. You know, there's illiquidity there too. I'd say that's a green. It's always cited as a
1: problem, but in practice, it just rumbles on. And the penultimate one is under-regulated non-banks.
0: Yeah, I think there there's a real problem. It's hard to gauge, though, but I'd say that could be a red. I'd put that much higher up on the list.
1: Yeah, it's one of those ones where what actually blows up the system is the unknown risk, right? It's the yeah. things that aren't on this list. And underregulated non-banks is broad enough to go, yeah, that's probably where the unknown <laughs> thing is. <laughs> And then the last one is fiscal debt sustainability. Green. It's not gonna come and blow us all up in the next 12 months, is it?
0: Well, no, as long as the yields stay reasonable. And again, that's to do with the debt ceiling, I guess. Investing is climbing a wall of worry. So if you have concerns and you want to talk to other people about it, and your family's bored stiff about hearing about your investments, then why not join our community? We'd love to talk about it with you. To learn more about that,
1: just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is surely low liquidity. Like We've mentioned that so many times in this podcast about how liquidity is low and that's a bad thing. But surely low liquidity just means the price is too high. If you drop the price of what you're selling it for, there'll be lots of people willing to take it off your hands. No? I think in certain markets
0: that's true. Things like property, for example, you know, there it is true that if you have a very high price, there won't be lots of buyers and it won't be a very liquid market. But those things are usually self-adjusting. And if there is no buyer, then clearly the prices will fall.
1: Yeah, it really annoys me when I see someone saying, oh, I could trying to sell this property, but no one will give me market price. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so cool. If you look at the Redfin data for US house prices right now, the number of people who actually get their asking price has fallen but the asking price has increased at exactly the same rate as last year so people are just not capitulating in this market no they're just saying right if i can't sell it at that
1: price i'm not going to sell it at all in the u.s it's much easier to wait isn't it because your interest rate on your mortgage is not going to increase like it will in the uk unless you have to
0: you know sometimes you have to move house you don't have a choice but yeah if you've got the choice so that's one thing In financial markets, usually the liquidity is much, much higher. So, you know, you get trillions, half a trillion traded daily for the treasury market, for example. People say it's not liquid, but all these things are relative. So the liquidity problem is more to do with the cost of trading. And that's always a problem. You can think of it as a kind of extractive tax on behalf of the market makers, which is great for the market makers, not so good for the people who take the other side of it, which is mostly us. So I think what liquidity really means from the point of view of an investor is how much am I having to pay in terms of fees? And that goes up when liquidity is low. So that could be a result of lots of things. It could just be that market makers are nervous. It could be that they're greedy and they can impose very high bid-offer spreads because they've got a monopoly. There are various reasons
1: why these bid-offer spreads blow out. Because one definition I saw for liquidity was that It's the ability to buy in size without moving the market.
0: Yeah, so there's a measure called the Amihud. I think that's how you pronounce it, liquidity measure, which is exactly that. If you put in a trade of a fixed size, how much does that move the market? And that indirectly is looking at the trading book. So how much of the limit offers are very close to the mid-market? So that's what it kind of tells you. And when market makers are nervous, they just widen that bid-offer spread which is not good for you because it means you're going to move the market a lot.
1: And is this kind of related to market depth? So the idea if you put in a big trade, you kind of blow through all the people who are near the mid-market price and now you're like having big legs down or up to the next price.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. If you don't limit your trade size, you're going to end up paying a lot more if you're buying or getting a lot less if you're
1: selling. So I guess the point here, to go back to the original question of does low liquidity just mean the price is too high? Well, it's not really that it's necessarily too high, is it? It could be too low. So we're talking about symmetrical around it. So it's not just, oh, people are asking too much for their treasuries. It doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean that.
0: Am I right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. So I think the problem really here is the market makers not being willing to take the risk or too much concentration with a limited number of market makers who've got some kind of monopoly.
1: Is there really a monopoly now in market makers?
0: Well, if you think about payment for order flow, that's what it's effectively doing is it's concentrating the flow with a certain small number of market makers who are willing to do this business, which is quite
1: profitable for them. And it's interesting, isn't it, that liquidity isn't like constant throughout the day. If you trade out of hours, as Robinhood is just starting to offer its customers (laughs) in the US... You're not trading on the exchange and liquidity is much lower. So that's a great business. You
0: know, if you've got a very illiquid market, then you can get away with charging a really big bid off the spread.
1: Yeah. And in this sort of nighttime trading, they're routing all the orders to something called Blue Ocean, which is an exchange-like, it says, an (laughs) exchange-like platform, (laughs) Whereas basically a load of, you know, hedge funds and market makers on the other side of the trade. Just ripping your face off, I guess. Yeah. I don't think it's a good development. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do
0: remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment
1: coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Ramin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.